in case the red banners and the, the dove didn't tip you off, this Sunday is Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early church and Aramaic-speaking Jews were given divine capability to proclaim the gospel in a language not their own so that the nations gathered in Jerusalem for a Jewish feast day might hear the good news that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God incarnate, was once crucified and buried, but has since risen from the dead and been crowned king of the world after ascending to the right hand of God the Father. It is a big day in the life of the church. And for the past three Sundays, really, we have been lingering in Luke's account of Pentecost in Acts 2. We saw the Holy Spirit descend two weeks ago with the sound of a mighty rushing wind, a hint Luke provides to suggest that God is creating something new like he did in Genesis 1 and in the Valley of Dry Bones with Elijah. We heard the apostles and others speaking in foreign languages and also heard the accusations from some in the crowd that these men were hitting the bottle at 8, 9 a.m. in the morning. And then Peter, full of the Holy Spirit himself, stood up to defend them and from Scripture, particularly the Psalms and the Prophets, demonstrated that this confusion of language was not the result of intoxication, but a sign that God promised long ago, a sign that Jesus has been crowned King and is now sending His Spirit into the world to convict, to comfort, and to collect the nations as His inheritance. Peter was telling the crowds on Pentecost that God rendered his verdict concerning Jesus of Nazareth, and the people who had put him, put, in, put him to death had gotten it all wrong. They had opposed God in Jesus' case. As our passage opens this morning, Peter is concluding his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he concludes with this damning declaration, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And with that, Peter drops the mic and walks away. What Peter is saying is that the people who put Jesus to death did so because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. But God raised Jesus to life precisely because he was the king of the Jews. God undid what they had done and they were found to have contradicted God himself. They were guilty before God and Jesus' blood was all over their hands. Jesus died because of them. But let's not be too quick to point the finger here. Jesus died because of me is the confession that every Christian must make, whether we scream to crucify him with the crowds in Jerusalem or not. The reason why Jesus voluntarily went to the cross was to bring about forgiveness of sins for every person throughout history and across the globe who believes that he truly was and is the eternal Son of God. Jesus didn't just die because of a rebellious handful of people in the first century world, but because of a rebellious humanity in all of the world. Jesus died because of us. Jesus died because of me. Our sin is the same as theirs. We have opposed and contradicted God. And it's this realization of our guilt for the death of Jesus Christ that is the beginning of faith. That was certainly the case for the 3,000 that became Christians on the day of Pentecost. Peter concluded his sermon by telling them, you are guilty of opposing God, and they were cut to the heart, the text tells us, in verse 37, convicted of their sin. 
and their guilt sent them in immediate search for relief. What shall we do, they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles. Sincere conviction of sin is the beginning of faith. Conviction of sin initiates the act of repentance, the return to the Father. But it's the grace of God to forgive sins that is truly transformative. The band Mumford & Sons has a great line in their song, Roll Away Your Stone. It seems that all my bridges have been burned. But you say that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with every start. It's not the long walk home that'll change this heart, the conviction of sin, the repentant return, but the welcome I receive with every start. The grace and the loving embrace of God upon arrival from the foreign country of our sin. And this is, of course, biblical. It's the parable of the prodigal sons that, that, son, that Mumford and Sons is referencing. Only Luke includes this story in his gospel, and it's the tale of two sons and their father. The youngest of two sons asks his father for his inheritance prematurely. The father is still alive, and the youngest son is essentially saying to him that he's unwilling to wait for the father to die in order to inherit his money. Give it to me now. The money is worth more to me than your very life. And the father, rather surprisingly, obliges this brash request. So the son leaves home with a fat wallet. But with no income and a large appetite for all things, this irreverent son burns through his inheritance rather quickly. He ends up being forced to take care of pigs to make ends meet, a rather humiliating job for a Jew. But the meager pay was insufficient for his needs, and one day he found himself envious of the pigs. He almost joined them in their slop-eating feast, but then he came to himself, the text says. He came to his senses. He was cut to the heart. He realized how he had offended his father and the mess he had made out of his life. And in his conviction of sin, he resolved to return to the father. But the entire time he walked, his heart was almost as heavy as his feet. His sin was overwhelming and the act of repentance humiliating. As he walked, he could easily draw up pictures of his father's scowl and his older brother's look of disdain. The entire time he kicked stones with his head slung low and he rehearsed this speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be even called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's the confession of a broken man. But it's what he experienced upon his return that that transformed his life and healed him. He experienced grace upon grace upon grace. His father was waiting in the field for him. Just as he had done every day since his youngest son's premature departure, and running to meet him, the father refused even to listen to one word of his son's well-worn confession. Instead, the father celebrated the son. He clothed him with new clothes and fine jewelry and threw a party to celebrate his return. It was a reception that was utterly unexpected and absolutely undeserved, but that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's transformative in its power. And this is the sort of lavish grace that on the day of Pentecost is extended to all who have been found guilty of opposing God and are convicted of their sin. Peter responds to the question of what shall we do by telling them in verse 38 to repent and take on the name of Jesus Christ through baptism and God will take up residence within you. This is sheer grace. Grace. 
The father in the parable of the prodigal son gave new clothes to his undeserving son. But Peter is saying that Jesus gives repentant sinners a new name, his name. You have offended him. And yet, he's willing for you to be called by his name. And more than that, God is willing to live with you, to live in you even. The Holy Spirit entering into your offensive body in order to comfort and correct you in your sin. What victim, when offended, would ever offer to live with their offender and participate in their reform? What victim would allow their offender to share their family name? And yet Jesus Christ has promised to do nothing less than this for you. Because he loves you. He wants to spare you the misery of living and dying in your sin. And if that's not enough grace for you, he extends this offer of grace to your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren. As Peter says in verse 39, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, all who are yet to come, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He is committed to redeeming generations upon generations of sinners who love him and in him find grace that overwhelms their guilt. It is this experience of the conviction of sin met with God's lavish grace that has created and defined the church from its very beginning. And out of this experience grows a community that is desperate, generous, and in awe. This is the sort of community that Luke describes in verses 42 to 47. They're desperate. All across the Midwest and even here in our state of Arkansas, there is currently unprecedented flooding sweeping away homes and livestock and crops. It's a tragedy to watch and the groaning levees holding back the water in many towns warn that it is far from over. Rescue teams have been deployed in many places to save humans and animals alike from the raging waters. And you can bet that the woman who is plucked out of the threatening waters does not hold loosely to her rescuer. With the cold, rushing waters in her memory, you can only imagine just how tightly she clings to the man who has saved her life. And the Christian community that Luke describes and acts is just as desperate after having been redeemed out of their sin by the grace of Christ. They cling to him with all their might. And look at verse 42. There Peter says that they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They studied scripture. They gathered together. They partook of the sacraments and they prayed with great faithfulness. There was nothing casual about this early community's devotion to drawing closer to Christ their Savior. Every opportunity they had, they did those things that would help them to know him better. They had the mindset of Martin Luther, who at the beginning of a very busy day declared, I have so much to do today that I must spend the first three hours in prayer. We would say we have so much to do today, we don't have time for prayer. But Luther and this early Christian community were desperate, you see. They kept the experience of their conviction of sin and the grace of God fresh in their minds, and it created them a posture of desperation for Jesus. In verse 46, we see that every day they got together, and whenever they were together, they took the Lord's Supper. The practice of the early church was not to eat this spiritual meal only once a month, but every time they met, because they understood that Jesus feeds our souls through the eating of that sacrament. 
And there's real nourishment that happens in the eating and drinking of Jesus' body and blood. They were desperately clinging to him. And so they ate that sacrament with great frequency and they let very little stand in their way of meeting together and encouraging one another in the midst of a crooked generation, as Peter dubs that first century world in verse 40. Their experience of their sin and the grace of God in Jesus Christ had made them desperate for Jesus. It also made them generous. Verse 44 says that these early Christians were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I mean, think of that sort of generosity. This isn't just the, you know, they gave lots of money to people who were in need. This is, they went into their living rooms and their dining rooms and their bedrooms and they picked out things that were valuable, things they perhaps loved and treasured even, prized possessions. And they took the paintings off the walls, the jewelry out of the boxes and the silverware out of the drawers, and they liquidated it all in order to give the proceeds to fellow Christians in need. This is a a level of of generosity that's drastic. We might even call it fanatical or overboard, were it not for the fact that this isn't the action of some radical Christian trying to make a splash with his latest tweet, but a description from Luke the historian about the practice of the early church. Such generosity is not the result of, of forced, reluctant obedience to some demand. Generosity like this only flows out of the deep realization that Jesus has bought you by his grace. And the life of grace you now live is not your own. Nothing you have is your own. Jesus has bought it all with his blood. But he's not left you poor. He's given you something far greater than any earthly possession. He's given the Holy Spirit to those who love him. The deposit of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and is being protected for us in heaven even now. We are heirs to an inheritance that we don't see right now, but has been promised us in Jesus. And if we are guaranteed heavenly riches, then how much easier it becomes to part with earthly ones. But all of this comes from the realization of the grace of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ, dwelling on that daily until our actions naturally flow from our experience of forgiveness without second thought. You know, around AD 250, there was a plague that absolutely devastated the Roman Empire. It's approximated that about 5,000 people were dying every day. It was incredibly dangerous. And as you can imagine, people left as quickly as they could. They got as far away from the plague as possible. People abandoned their own sick family members and friends in order to escape with their own lives. But there was one group of people who didn't leave, and those were the Christians. While everyone was fleeing Rome, they were going into Rome in order to care for the dying family members that had been abandoned. These were pagan men and women, and there at their bedside at risk to their own lives were Christians. And the only explanation for such madness is the deep acceptance that their lives were not their own. They had already died in Jesus and now lived his life. And this sort of selfless concern for the sick is exactly the way Jesus lived. He he died for the rebel, the helpless, the sick, for you. And if you can wrap your heart and mind around that fact, then generosity is the result. Fanatical, overboard generosity. And the Christian community that began at Pentecost was also a community in awe. 
They were in awe because they were swept up into a story where God was the, char- the main character and he was choosing to work through them. And he was doing things through them that they never thought possible. You know, most of us want to be part of something in our life, something enduring and great even. And Christianity offers entrance into the greatest story in the world, the redemption of humanity and the healing of the world. Through the church, God is making the grace of Jesus Christ known in the world so that the hearts of men and women might be transformed and the world made new. It's a grand story of recreation, but it all begins with acceptance of the gospel. Tim Keller summarizes the gospel for us this way. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are more sinful than we believed and yet more loved than we even hoped. We exist by grace. And if we can learn to live out of that grace, then God will turn us into a community transformed, people that are desperate, people that are generous, and people that are in constant awe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing. We're going to sing hymn number 352, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus.